This is an AMI podcast. Hey there, this is Kelly McDonald, co-host of Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. On our show, we're always discussing the latest events and happenings in the blind and low vision community. Our regional contributors across Canada work tirelessly to keep you updated on events you can't miss and keep you connected to your community. So don't miss out. Listen to Kelly and Company wherever you listen to good podcasts. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to name a few social media networks, have changed how we communicate in startling and rapid ways. The power of social media is in its ability to open up channels of communication and bring people together on a virtual platform. Social media has been credited with social change and revolution, like the Arab Spring. Social media has changed political fortunes, allowed traditionally disenfranchised groups to have a voice, and to hold institutions accountable. But even though social media heralds a new, more democratic form of civic engagement, it's worth noting that not everyone has equal opportunity or access to public discourse over social media. Today, we discuss social media accessibility and usability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's great to be with you today. I want to remind you that if at any point you'd like to get caught up with AMI-audio's latest coverage around COVID-19, you can visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. A few weeks ago, I noticed there was another controversy on Twitter about a new feature that Twitter had rolled out, which allowed users to put in audio tweets. It became quickly evident that the feature, which had been put out with minimal testing, would be entirely inaccessible to users who were deaf and or hard of hearing. So this controversy in and off of itself wasn't surprising. As someone who's been congenitally blind, I know that social media, and in fact a lot of digital media, tends to be quite inaccessible. What got me interested, though, was the ways in which many people with disabilities not only took to Twitter to talk about how the platform could be made more accessible, but it made me wonder, moreover, whether there was some value in interrogating the question Is there an import to people with disabilities participating in online public discourse? Everybody's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Tumblr, for all kinds of things. And so if people with disabilities don't have access to these spaces and these places where discussions take take place, what does that mean, not just for people with disabilities, but for everybody, regardless of ability? So to help me parse some of these questions, my guest today is Elizabeth Elsesser, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Virginia. Elizabeth is the author of the 2016 book, which I'm reading through at the moment, called Restricted Access, Media, Disability, and the Politics of Participation. Elizabeth, welcome to The Pulse. It is so great to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here today to talk about a topic that has been important for many years and is only gaining visibility uh, in recent months. Let me ask you a basic question then. So what do you understand by access and accessibility when it comes to digital media? Is it just a a checkbox or a bunch of things that we need to 
put in place? Or is the concept of accessibility a little more complicated than that? Accessibility is a complicated concept uh, on multiple levels. Uh, for one thing, we tend to hear it used colloquially to mean uh, anything from sort of availability to affordability. Oh, I'm going to make this more accessible to my audience. Uh, but in legal contexts uh, and in disability specific contexts, accessibility means something else. Uh, accessibility for me, it, as I use it in conversation and teaching, uh, is usually understood to be um, the degree to which uh, an individual disabled person can use a media technology to do the thing they want to do. Hmm. So built into that definition is first off the centrality of disability, uh, but also the element of desire or interest uh, that is part of access. Uh, so access and accessibility are not simply a checkbox, but they're about understanding um, people's wants and needs and experiences uh, in order to facilitate the kind of positive experiences with media technology that uh, non-disabled people are generally offered. Mm -hmm. So in light of that definition, let's go back to what happened with Twitter. Were you, because I know I wasn't, but were you surprised when the, there was some backlash from people within the disability community saying that the audio tweets weren't accessible? And has Twitter, in your opinion, been a leader in the field of accessibility or have they more often than not lagged behind? So I've been following Twitter accessibility for, frankly, a decade. Uh, if not longer. Uh, and Twitter has often lagged behind in a way that is remarkable uh, for a social media service that was initially about uh, simply sharing 140 characters of text. Uh, this basic foundation would seem to be easily accessible. And yet in the early years of Twitter, uh, they implemented the site in such a way that it was not accessible to screen readers. And many blind and visually impaired users could not navigate Twitter uh, using their assistive technologies. This led to all kinds of individuals scraping Twitter's API to make blind-friendly interfaces. Uh, it led to consultations with Twitter and accessibility experts. Uh, but change came very slowly. Uh, and even today, the accessibility features that Twitter offers, such as the ability to add alternate text to an image, are hidden. You have to opt in to choose to provide alternate text for your images. Now, for most everyday internet users who are neither um, accessibility experts nor tech developers, mm -hmm. this, they don't know what this means. This is not presented to them as important or interesting or normal. Uh, and thus, you have people not opting in, which means that the bulk of images on the site remain inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, it's not surprising to see Twitter failing to implement accessible features. Uh, and it's also not surprising to see disabled communities calling them out because Twitter has been a crucial site, uh, particularly in the past, oh, I want to say five years, uh, mm -hmm. for the emergence of 
a political and cultural disability community. Disability Twitter is really strong and active these days. Uh, and so to see Twitter miss that and miss the fact that that audience existed and was going to be aware um, is regrettable. But is it surprising, given that Twitter controls maybe not as large a, a market share as Facebook, but a large enough market share such that they probably have the budget to facilitate research and development and design something that's accessible from the ground up? They do. And for me, the most shocking component of this uh, incident with the uh, voice tweets was the discovery that Twitter has an internal accessibility team made up entirely of volunteers who have other full-time jobs within Twitter. They aren't paying anyone to do accessibility work. They're relying upon the volunteerism of their other employees. And that's such a stark signal that this is not something that they value or pay for or think about. It was really uh, stunning to see in 2020. I'm speaking to Elizabeth Elsesser, who is an associate professor at the University of Virginia, opening up the conversation a little bit and going beyond Twitter. What role then does collaboration play? I mean, you talked about feeling stunned that Twitter relies on the volunteerism of its employees. But are there other models that maybe rely on collaboration between web developers and end users that might be a little more fruitful? Absolutely. I think for one thing, uh, there's a tendency within a number of Uh, tech companies to think about accessible design as something that they do for disabled communities, Uh, meaning that they often miss out on the fact that disabled web developers exist. There are Mm -hmm. people with disabilities and with training uh, who would love these jobs. Uh, Mm -hmm. If these jobs were available, it would not be difficult to find experts to fill them. Mm -hmm. So you have the model of sort of directly hiring Uh, disabled people, or at minimum, accessibility professionals who are trained on these issues. Uh, And then there are models of um, inclusive design. Uh, There are ideas about sort of ongoing testing, paying disabled people to serve as beta testers to catch accessibility issues that may otherwise go unnoted um, that may be more fruitful. Uh, And I think Twitter, as this sort of drug on, Uh, began to realize what a wealth of knowledge it had among its own user base, uh, that it could, in fact, learn from uh, what disabled users were telling them about accessibility, about inclusion, uh, and about the changes that they wanted to see. There's so many models about disability and how we come to define and understand disability as a category. The social model of disability says that it's not individual conditions, but societal factors that disable, that, that cause disablement or in, impairment. Mm-hmm. And so when you apply that logic to online spaces, is there a way in which concepts like universal design might come into play? So that we're designing things outside, uh, you know, the, from, from the get-go that are accessible, that we're bringing in, into play some of those principles of universal design. Absolutely. Universal design has been a very productive framework uh, for thinking about how to design accessible uh, social media and other digital technologies. Uh, It's something that a lot of human-computer interaction specialists are familiar with. Uh, It's something that can be used uh, as a starting point for accessible design. Uh, Additionally, though, not all universal design interventions facilitate accessibility for all people. So you want to be thinking both and. Uh, 
both paying attention to universal design principles, building from the ground up in order to be as usable as possible by as many different people as possible, while also thinking about the specificities of what accessibility means for specific user groups and how you can address those concerns. You noted that accessibility has often been determined in legal terms. And so when Mm. we think about the legalities um, of disability and accessibility, the Americans with Disabilities Act is in its 30th year this year. Um, Then also we had that very significant landmark case around Domino's Pizza. When you think about some Mm. of the, the legal and regulatory frameworks, are we going to legislate our way into a more accessible online experience? Is that the way to go? I think that that has been a growing uh, path for a lot of accessibility online. Uh, As early as 1996, the federal government in the United States uh, indicated that they thought uh, online sites were bound by the ADA. Recent cases against uh, Netflix, Target, Domino's, as you mentioned, uh, have all sort of solidified this. Uh, Importantly, there have not been as many binding decisions in this realm as we might like. Uh, There have been a number of um, negotiations through which the cases uh, result in more accessible interfaces uh, without the setting of legal precedent. Additionally, though, we've seen this happen uh, primarily in cases where there's a clear offline analog. Uh, You mentioned the Domino's case. It's very easy Mm -hmm. to understand how Domino's website and the Domino's in the strip mall down the street are the same thing. Uh, Social media becomes a challenge because there is not that offline um, counterpart. It's not easy to say that, oh, accessibility of Twitter is just like accessibility of well, what in the physical world? (laughs) Uh, So I think we're seeing some slowness there because the uh, one-to-one relationship is not as clear. My name is Joetha Gupta, and I'm with you today. And my guest is Elizabeth Elsesser, who is the Associate Dean at the University of Virginia. Elizabeth, with all the challenges that the disability community has in front of it, housing, employment, uh, access to transportation, safety, why in the scheme of things would you say it's so important that we engage this idea that people with disabilities don't have access to online spaces in the same way as able-bodied people do? So I think that the most um, compelling argument here is that we've taken for granted that this sea change in online communication over the past 20 years uh, has expanded uh, people's ability to talk to one another, to make themselves heard to a broader audience, uh, and to create new kinds of cultural spaces and interactions. If this sea change happens without the participation of disabled people, then it is always going to be in the interests of uh, otherwise privileged able-bodied audiences. As this happens over time, uh, distinctions grow larger, access gaps uh, become worse, uh, and you start to see uh, the sort of limited vision of both the present and the future that comes from an entirely sort of able-bodied user perspective. Mm-hmm. Beyond this sort of philosophical argument, though, uh, at a real practical level, I think it's become evident um, in the months since coronavirus uh, changed all of our lives, how much work we do 
uh, and can do online, how much we can socialize with other people in virtual ways. Uh, and this is revealing something about how disabled people have long wanted and sought out these kinds of experiences and accommodations. Uh, and they've often been told that, oh, it would be too hard to have you telecommute. Oh, it would be uh, just too confusing if we had to Skype someone in every day. Uh, mm -hmm. And now we're all doing it all the time. Uh, and so it becomes evident that a lot of things have been set up in ways that exclude disabled people that didn't have to exclude them in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and that disabled people have been doing things uh, differently that the able-bodied population could learn from. Mm -hmm. One of the, the things that I sort of draw comparisons with is the work of Edward Said, who, as you know, is a leader, uh, was a leader in the field of cultural studies and makes this argument about Orientalism being not just about the people who are at the margins, but also the people at the center. So when we apply that thinking to online spaces and digital spaces, is there an argument that can be made that the user for whom things are designed is an able-bodied user and the discourse that's being had is one that's geared towards an able-bodied person? If that's the assumption, what does that mean for the overall health of public discourse? I think you're absolutely right to draw this comparison between sort of the margins and the center uh, in how we think about design and disability issues, uh, in part because we often are presented with uh, new technologies as if they are uh, inherently beneficial uh, and as if they are inherently usable. Uh, but both of these assumptions uh, speak to a reliance on an able-bodied intended audience. Uh, that this is going to benefit people we understand to be sort of normal, uh, productive members of society. Uh, and when you start to think through a disability perspective on these technologies, you see the ways that these assumptions get encoded uh, in the very technologies and discourses around them. Uh, one of my favorite examples are the early iPad commercials that use the phrase, you already know how to use it. Uh, and this makes sense only if you, whoever you are, uh, already have experience with particular technologies, already understand uh, how um, haptic technologies in particular work, uh, have a particular set of bodily abilities, understand where to find assistive options if you need them. Uh, this you was not really speaking to everyone. It was speaking to a very narrowly constructed normative user. Mm -hmm. And so if the online world replicates real-world distinctions and forms of marginalization, what does that mean for, and you sort of alluded to this earlier in our conversation, what does that mean for the ways in which people with disabilities engage with each other and with, uh, with other people without disabilities online? So there's so much activism that happens where people with disabilities appropriate Twitter and other social media. How do you contextualize that kind of use of social media? So I think that um, one of the real transformations of social media has been this ability to form connections and mobilize across time and distance uh, around shared identities or interests. So these, this kind of political activism is so important. Uh, and we often don't hear about it in the disabled 
um, community from mainstream press and so on. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, it's been going on for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is particularly the case in many cases because uh, disability is so invisible uh, in many people's everyday lives, uh, whether that is through mainstream and entertainment media, through uh, their own local or social networks, uh, finding people like you um, can be much more easily done online. Uh, and so making those connections available uh, is so important to enabling uh, the kinds of cultural and political connections that we'd like to see. In your book, you talk about a five-part accessibility kit. Tell us about it. So I uh, ended up writing the book uh, largely to people within my home field of media studies uh, for whom access was not something that we had talked about before. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, there's a lot of work on film spectatorship, uh, but mo most of it takes for granted that the spectator can see and hear and sit in a movie theater. Uh, and so what does that start to look like if we center access? What does it mean to access? How does access look different for different people? Uh, and then how does that transform media experiences? Mm -hmm. uh, and so after doing several years of research into digital accessibility, uh, I put together a sort of access kit as a means for um, giving other people the chance to apply access studies uh, to their own media objects. So mm -hmm. I'm most focused on the digital, but perhaps someone could take these ideas and apply them to say television. How does television construct access uh, and how does that uh, affect what we think we know about it? And so right now I'm speaking to Elizabeth Elsesser, who is an associate professor at the University of Virginia. When you think about access, one of the things that uh, we tend not to talk about is this idea of content, uh, because we feel that, you know, the end goal of making something accessible is to have that content remained unchanged, but available to people through a variety of formats. And yet for mm -hmm. anyone, regardless of whether they identify as having a disability, the content is why they want to be on social media. Do you ever draw a connection between the content um, and the ways in which that content or the form of that content is presented as being accessible? Yes. So one of the challenges uh, when talking about accessibility, uh, particularly from sort of a bureaucratic or legal framework, uh, has centered on this idea that you can change the form of uh, media or a technology. You can add closed captions. You can add um, descriptive text. You can add form labels, uh, but that you shouldn't try to adjust the content. Uh, and the content, uh, as you say, is what people are often trying to access. That's the purpose. That's the motivation uh, for what they're going through. Uh, and at the same time, content can itself be inaccessible, uh, whether that is in terms of vocabulary as it applies um, to some cognitive uh, impairments, if that is related to um, I think video games are another interesting example where the line between content and format is uh, hard to draw. Uh, so thinking about accessibility in terms of content uh, often means thinking about not just the technical checkboxes, how can we change how this works, uh, but thinking 
more deeply about what do we want people to get out of this? What is going to be meaningful about it? How can we convey that in a way that people can understand and make use of? Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. The time's just flown by. I looked up and I said, oh my gosh, it's <laughs> over. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. That was Elizabeth Elsesser, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Virginia. Elizabeth is the author of the 2016 book, Restricted Access, Media, Disability, and the Politics of Participation. Some of her ongoing research, which we didn't actually get a chance to talk about today, was about emergency management systems, but hopefully I can convince Elizabeth to come back and chat about that. If you missed any of our conversation today, though, you can find it on our favorite, on your favorite podcast podcast platforms, wherever that might be. Before we go, I just want to point out how important it is to access digital media and social media as a way to stay connected and how developers, users, everybody, various stakeholders all have a, a role to play in ensuring that digital spaces are designed with users of all abilities in mind. You can head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll probably have a few more things to say on this on the show blog. So check us out there. I'd like to thank Elizabeth Elsesser for being my guest on the program today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and I hope you stay safe and be well. We'll be back again very soon with more Pulse on AMI-audio. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.